You're listening to Episode 3 of the Child Life On Call Podcast. After our guest's story, you'll hear a message from this episode's sponsor, Wombie MedPods, the first swaddle sack available for hospitalized neonates and infants that work around medical devices. Hi, and welcome to the Child Life On Call Podcast. When your child is sick, the whole world seems to stop in its tracks. Plans and priorities change, and your number one job becomes figuring out how to get your child well again. For some of us, rest, medications, and relaxation can do the trick. But for others, it takes more. It takes countless doctor appointments, invasive medical testing, therapy, surgeries. The list goes on, and then you still may not have all of the answers or results you were hoping for. This podcast features parents of children that have an illness or medical condition and gives them a place to share their own journeys and experiences. We will talk about the ups and the downs, the highs and the lows, but one thing seems to remain the same. Children are resilient and teach us more about ourselves and the world than we could ever imagine. Thank you so much for lending a listening ear and opening up your heart to these families and this podcast. I'm your host, Katie Taylor. Today, you'll get a chance to meet Kim Pena. It is rare to get the opportunity to talk to someone who is so eloquent and poised in every aspect of their life, but Kim truly is. In addition to owning and writing an honest, funny, and exciting blog, Kim has been in education for eight years, and her husband is a police officer. Today, she will be talking to us about her son's journey with microtia atresia. Microtia is a congenital deformity where the external ear is underdeveloped. Atresia is the absence or closure of the external auditory ear canal. The malformation of the middle ear bones may be affected, including the narrowing of the ear canal. This is a birth deformity that occurs in about five to 7,000 births. Today, we will hear Kim talk about her experience in finding out that her son had microtia atresia, a link to family history and how that has affected her journey, and the tough decision about how to move forward with surgery. To let you get to know Kim a little bit better, she begins by talking to us a bit about her family and the birth of her precious son, Thomas. I am married to my husband, Marco. Uh, We've been married for six years. We've been together for nine, and we kind of came together in Austin. He came for a job uh, from El Paso. I came from Oklahoma to look for a job and kind of met each other along the way. Um, Thomas is our first son and currently our only child. Uh, And he was born in 2013. Um, And he, but kind of, I am an educator. I work in uh, school districts and work with coaching teachers. Um, My husband's police officer in Austin. Tell us about when you found out about Thomas's medical condition. So we found out when Thomas was born. Uh, he had a difficult labor, to say the least. Uh, he's a little bit stubborn and showed that from the get-go. It was 30 hours. Um, I had to be induced. I was already at 41 weeks, so the doctor wouldn't let me go any longer. Um, so I got induced, and I was, and it was still 30. I kind of kept having nurses being like, oh, yeah, you're going to go quick, and that just never happened. Um I, I pushed for four hours almost, and he was finally, they finally got him out, but they had to use forceps, um, and they told us that when they were, since they were going to use forceps, they were going to bring in a pediatrician in case, because it wasn't gradual, it was going to happen all at once, so they brought in a pediatrician, and as soon as he was born, um, the pediatrician wouldn't let me see him, 
And I knew it was okay. He was crying. They let my husband come touch the umbilical cord, but he wouldn't let me see him. And finally he came over um, and he told me, he said he, his ear didn't completely form and he's going to have some, um, some issues. And I, you know, I just need to let you know. And I of course was in tears and it had been such a long process. I was like, just let me see him. Just give me my kid. And so he did. And he, um, and he told me after he said, you know, I have to tell women, I've seen women going to postpartum depression immediately. I've seen, you know, when you have no knowledge of that there's anything wrong and suddenly your kid is born and there's something wrong and they're not, you know, the perfect child you envisioned. He said, sometimes, you know, it's too much. It's overwhelming. And just the whole, and he said, I have just my duty to kind of talk to you first. And I said, that's fine. I'm, you know, I wasn't upset or anything. I said, that's fine. You know, I just, I just want to hold him. It did kind of, though, after we found out, kind of, it kind of set in over the next week or so. Just, but it was a little different, you know. We would we, we both talk about, he was born with um, the condition on his right ear, and he was also born with a couple skin tags, which are very commonly associated with this condition. And so it very much was. We kind of, you know, we, my husband and I would talk about that. We did kind of look at the ear sometimes and catch ourselves. And I told him, I said, I catch myself and I feel bad, but then I'm like, he's a baby. It's okay. <laughs> While this news came as a shock to Kim, she had known someone else with this condition. Her husband's brother was also born with microtia atresia. So while Kim was unable to hold Thomas immediately after he was born, her husband was able to see him and let Kim know, he's okay. It's what my brother has. So I asked Kim if there was any way to find out if a baby has this condition in utero before they're born. No, there actually is. If they do a 40 sonogram, um, which they actually did at one point, but they didn't look at the ears because we didn't know to look at the ears. Um, when they do the 40 sonogram, they can look at the ears and they can tell and they can see, are they fully formed? Um, the ears are actually one of the first things that form. They form in the, form in the first trimester um, at this time as the kidneys. And so it's really early that it happens and that this condition could become pregnant. And they can see those if they do those kind of type of sonograms. We have been told by a um, doctor at the, or a specialist that this specific condition was usually your um, kind of like a just a circumstance, like a physical thing. It wasn't a genetic thing, and when it was when it was genetic, it was linear. So, like his brother's child would have an option of having it, but not our kid. So we didn't know to look for it. And then our kid was born with it. And so it was kind of like we could have looked for it had we kind of thought about that. Like if we have another, they will for sure look for it, um, even though that's, that's even more rare to have siblings with it. But if, you know, that's something they can tell, they just didn't really, we didn't know to ask them or they didn't know to look for it. Did your relationship with your husband's brother kind of grow from there? Because I'm sure you would want to ask him questions and kind of know what his experience was like and see if it would all kind of line up with what Thomas was going to go through. Interesting. I don't think that one changed as much as my relationship with my father-in-law changed. Um, his experience of being a parent that went through it and going through the different options, you know, kind of just understanding it, that kind of changed more than anything else. He's the one that, you know, when Thomas first started realizing he was different, when he first started asking questions, he was the one that I could, you know, call or text or anything and just kind of be vulnerable and kind of ask questions and not know what to do and kind of have these what how do I prepare for this kind of things and he was the one that really has kind of I think our relationship has grown much more the last few years than um than anybody else just because he's been where I am and so he's able to kind of 
helped me out through that. And he's, he's been a huge help. He was actually there when we went for Thomas's um, first surgery. He came with us and he was just like with us the whole time. Like it was incredible. Do you think he has a pretty special relationship with Thomas? Um, maybe kind of reliving through what he went through with his own son? I mean, he, he's a fantastic grandparent. Like he has a fantastic relationship with all his grandchildren. But yeah, I definitely think that they, that was, Thomas was the first grandchild too. So I think that it kind of compounded it, that they had that kind of to build off of. Well, so I guess, so he's born, you find out about the medical condition. Um, what do your like doctor's appointments, like how soon do you do surgery? How does that all work? We had to have kidney tests done when he was a few days old, um, or actually just like a day old, to make sure that the kidney functioned properly, that they had both formed all these different things, and they were fine. When he was about three weeks old, we had to go to Dell Children's to have um, a brain wave test done. Uh, pretty much they just wanted us to bring him asleep, and they put all these little different things on his head. Um, and they gave it's a type of hearing test, but it measures if his brain waves are responding to the sounds, and pretty much it tells him if he has a cochlear nerve. So we found out then that he had a cochlear nerve. Um, he has what's called inner ear hearing. He's missing middle and outer ear hearing. Um, he has he has his first year he had audiologist appointments to check for hearing um, every six months, starting at one month old. And that's also where we first found out about the type of hearing aid that he was um, available to get. And he got his hearing aid at two months old. Um, and then he has also had ENT appointments and audiologist appointments since then at once, like once a year. We get those. His first surgery was done when he was three. And that's really, with my crochet, there are different options for surgeries throughout there's different options for reconstruction of the outer ear. There's different options for um, either looking at getting your hearing aid put where it attaches to the um, skull, or there's options for looking at canal reconstruction. And so depending on what option you take, depending on how old they have to be to get it. Specific options start as young as three, but other options don't start until five to seven. So it really depends on what you choose. Surgery of any kind can feel scary for any parent. Kim walks us through what her decision-making process was and how they came to one final conclusion. Um, you know, and that one was kind of, like my husband knew, I think, from having a brother with us that he wanted to have the surgery. We looked at the different options that they had. Um, one is called a rib graft surgery, which takes place in about four different surgeries, but they're shorter. They're like two to three hour surgeries um, where they harvest cartilage from your rib and to create an ear, and they do a skin graft to create that ear, and that, like I said, it takes about four surgeries. His brother had started that process, and he, I think he got to, like, the second class one and just told his parents, like, I'm done, I don't want any more surgeries. And I think seeing his brother go through so many surgeries made my husband much more inclined to look at the option that we went with, which is called a med pore surgery, which is where they take a plastic composite material to form the actual like ear and they take skin grafts to kind of attach it and shape it um and when we found that one it could be done as young as three which we liked but it was done sooner rather than later the um, doctor actually told us that she liked that because their skin was more it was almost like thinner like it's more malleable and it just kind of looks more natural when you're done younger and it was also one surgery. And so he liked the fact that it, he wouldn't have to go back. 
it was one surgery and the reconstruction was done. And then if we wanted to do, we still have not done either the hearing aid implantment or the reconstruction of the canal, just because those don't happen until he's six or seven. Gotcha. Okay. So um, when he had that first surgery, when he was three, was that the first time he was under anesthesia? It was. <laughs> he had to have a he had to have a CT scan before it, um, but he was able to make it through without uh, being under under anesthesia. But for his actual surgery, we had to pretty much keep him away from everybody for almost a month before because he couldn't have any. I mean, they probably asked me like a dozen times, "Have you had any symptoms of color flu? Have you had any?" And I'm just like, "No, no, we've been good." Um, but he, he had to be kind of kept away and he was under anesthesia for about 13 hours. It was a long day. They let us in when they first started to give him some different things, which was about, uh, 6am or so. Um, I guess we got there about five and then maybe they started giving him, they gave him like some, rela- some stuff to relax from about 5.30 and they took him in about six. And then we were in the office. It was supposed to, you know, they had told us that it was commonly eight to 10 hour surgery. That's what we kind of expected. Um, but they had just some things where the surgeon, you know, she was a wonderful surgeon and she would just tell us, she would, you know, she would call me once an hour to tell me how things were going. And she would tell, and she came out about three times during the day as well. And she would tell us, you know, I'm trying to take, I need to take my time because of X, Y, Z and all these different things. And so that's kind of what made it. And she would tell us like, I'm going to take my time to make it better in the long run, but it might take a longer surgery. And how so, did you, were you okay with that or? You know, I, it's, it's good kind of where you have that balance in your marriage. I was a nervous wreck that day. I was an emotional wreck leading up to it. <laughs> My husband was fine. He was cool as a cucumber. So he would, you know, make me go get coffee, make me go walk around, making, you know, he was like, okay, we can't just stay in this room the whole time. Uh, as soon as Thomas came out of surgery and he was puffy and had all these bandages, I was fine because he's out. He's good. <laughs> Then my husband was kind of like, oh, he's in pain. How do we, how, like, you know, then he was kind of, it was harder for him at that point. And so it was good because we kind of balanced each other and just kind of switched. Yeah, that's, that's really good that it kind of worked out without even having to talk about it. You guys just assumed those roles to begin with. So after he's out of surgery, did he have a long hospital stay after that? Yeah, they actually released him that day in this type of surgery. Um, it's technically an outpatient surgery, um, but he comes back, he came back the exact next day to their doctor's office. We had to say her office is in California and there's only about three surgeons that are really experienced that do this surgery in the country. So that, that in and of itself was a battle to be able to get our insurance to, you know, approve them to be able to see why they were different, et cetera. Um, but we had to stay in California for two weeks after. So he had to meet her for two weeks after to change bandages, different things like that. Um, until he was fully, like, that's when he was fully released. And that's when we could go home. Did you guys meet any other families while you were there um, who had gone through the same or a similar surgery as Thomas? I've talked with families that did, and it's kind of crazy. We met we met a family um, at Disneyland. We, we took him to Disneyland because, you know, we're, we're in California. We wanted to make the best of his, you know, visit. We didn't want it to be completely just, I went for California surgery, so... We took him to Disneyland, and they have a very unique um, kind of bandages for this ear and for this type of surgery. And a mom said, oh, did you see Dr. Lewin? And I said, how oh, I said, yes. And she said, oh, my son got that surgery three years ago. 
And so she introduced us to her son and told it, and they lived there. So she was like, we're here all the time. This is this. And she said, and every now and again, we'll see a kid without those bandages. And she said, I know what it is it's because we've been there. So it was kind of, she was the only one that I met. And then we saw families in the waiting room of the office and things like that. But she was the only one that we met that really kind of just talked to us all. And I've, I've seen people, there's different support groups and stuff um, online. So I've seen people and met people through online groups and they connected me with some different people as well. Um, she was kind of the first one that we met, you know, in faith that was just like, here's my kid. Let's, you know, look at his ear, feel free kind of thing. So what's the upkeep like? Like, do you have to play nurse with all the bandages and just checking on things? Um, I did it first. So bandages came off at two weeks, Um, but he had specific things he had to do um, for about six months after. We had to send pictures to the doctor. We Sometimes she would do phone consultations and she'd ask us questions. You know, how do you feel like this is forming? How do you feel like this is, you know, going this and that? Um, since then, really, the most you have to do is sometimes, as, especially as the weather changes, he had kind of, as it's it's adjusting and the weather's changing and his skin is still healing, he'll get dead skin sometimes. But it's certain things like, you know, putting coconut oil on his ear, things like that, that we kind of have to keep up with. And that's really, I mean, it's really, it's not that intense of an upkeep. It's still sensitive. If he bangs it, he still gets, you know, it hurts. Um so it's it's still sensitive, but it's not anywhere near. I mean, at first he wouldn't let anybody touch it. Like it hurt me just putting motion on it. He would just he just it hurt him. Getting a three year old to do anything you ask can be difficult. The term three-nager definitely earns its title. Kim though says that establishing trust, structure, and distraction is what has helped them the most. He knows we're not going to hurt him on purpose. He knows that you know we're going to be there like. We may have to clean out this year and it might be uncomfortable, but at the end, I'll hold you and cuddle you and you'll be okay. And so just kind of having some of those things, I think, helped him um, because he would. He would he'd be like, okay, let's just, you know, distractions help a lot. But when we had to do um, the creams that were daily, my husband would literally, like, hold up, like, you know, an iPad or whatever and let him watch TV as I was putting on the cream and things like that. Yeah. So oh anything that can help. like You're your own child life nurse physician team at home. <laughs> well, and it was his, it was things that, I mean, they gave you a ton of instructions, but you just had to do it kind of thing. <laughs> did you find that he did better knowing ahead of time that it was going to happen, how long it was going to take, and then it was going to be over? I mean, sometimes the, the easiest thing to do is just to, like, get it done, but that doesn't always build that trust, kind of like you were saying. Well, honestly, he got used to the fact that it was going to happen. And if I told him too much ahead of time, even in his little three-year-old mind, he would dread it. And so it would be worse. And so I always kind of, and I would tell him, like, with a few minutes, like, we're going to take a bath and then we'll put the stuff on your ear. Or we're going to go get, you know, we're going to go do this and put the stuff on your ear. Like, it was just like, in the next five or ten minutes, you're going to get this stuff kind of thing. And so it, that kind of helped where he didn't have so much time that he could build it up. But he at least, you know, pulled it out, wasn't like complete, in complete shock either. And I tell him now, if I can tell, and I mean, I can notice it if it needs to be cleaned in certain ways. And I'll just say, you know, tonight when we take a bath, we need to clean out your ear. And sometimes he, he won't want it to happen. Sometimes he's fine with it. So it just kind of depends too. He's still three. So, you know, that he's still a three-nager. So some days are great, some days are not so much. <laughs> I think a lot of parents can relate to what Kim is saying. 
Although this experience comes with challenges for Thomas and their whole family, Kim points out some bittersweet moments too. I mean, I think with like with the surgery, the thing I was like, I got to the point where I was a little bittersweet. Like I was kind of sad that I was going to lose his little ear. I made my husband go out and like get pictures done the month before because I was like, I've got to have pictures of his little ear before I lose it. But when, when we saw his new ear and I mean, just, it just looks like he looks so different and he just, it was so pretty. Like she did such a good job on it that just seeing it the first time, like I was in tears. He kept asking me why my face was leaking. And I was like, because he was like, I know you're not sad. Like that's not all you're saying. <laughs> and so it was, it was overwhelmingly just incredible experience. Um, I think with, you know, I think it's just kind of taught me things that, cannot take taking for granted though. There are so many little things that I would never have thought of, like headphones. Um, that just to me are just something that you do that my kid doesn't do. He doesn't have a hole, so he does not wear, you know, that's not something he can participate in. There's stuff that's made for um his type of loss so he can still, you know, use that, but little things like that that I just never thought about and, you know, the little details of like how your ears hear differently. Both ears take in different types of sound and things like that. But I never even knew. I'm not like a biology or anatomy kind of person. So these were things that I had no idea about that I've learned because of his kind of journey and his experiences that kind of has just kind of broadened my scope of this part of in this kind of group of people in this part of the world as well. Do you have any kind of tips or tricks that really worked for you um, in terms of having a child with microtia or what worked really well for your family? Honestly, I think a big part of what worked for me, my husband was doing your research. Um, there's a lot of information out there, but it's a condition that even some doctors don't know all the details about. And when we first brought the type of surgery we wanted to have done to our ENT, they had never heard of it, which, it, I mean, isn't surprising because it's a rare uh, condition. And so, you know, we weren't angry, but we were kind of like, well, they, you know, they can't help us. So we have to go figure it out for ourselves. And so just doing your research, kind of finding out as much as you can. The online groups do help, but then you also have that kind of, and I think this happens in any kind of online forum, but you have that kind of, I've made this decision for myself or for my child. And if you question that decision, I might get defensive. And so it's kind of like they're good when they're really good and positive and supportive. And for the most part, they are. But you might encounter that and you just kind of have to be prepared. Uh, one thing that we didn't know at all was we didn't know until our audiologist told us that he even had the option to be aided. They haven't, they just did this surgery. And I want to say it was Columbia, but it might have been Harvard that did the surgery or the study that, um, said that you need both ears for hearing, that they take in different sounds and you need them both. Before that, for, you know, however many years, if you had one ear that could hear, you were fine. And so this idea that if you have one that is having a loss, it needs to be aided is very new. So you can, you know, if you have that kind of thing where you're saying, okay, we're going to go ahead and aid our kid, a lot of people will be like, well, I've never had that. I didn't need that. Or your kid doesn't need that. Or, you know, and you're just like, well, so it's those kind of things where you, it's kind of, you make the best decision for yourself and your family. And so it's like learning all you can, but knowing that you can make those best decisions and, and sticking with them. You know, we had a lot of people that I, you know, I, like I said, I had to get the insurance to like battle insurance to approve our surgeon. And we had a lot of people that were just like, just go find somebody that's here. Just go find somebody that's closer. 
but you know, we did our homework, we made our decision, we stuck to it. So it's kind of just being making kind of informing yourself, but also being confident in what you choose. Well, and it seems like it was really worth it. You seem kind of really happy and at peace with the decision that you guys made. And I'm sure a lot of that came from the strength that you guys had as kind of a family um, to move forward with that. I will tell you, because I did, like, especially the last few months until his, we had to plan his surgery a year in advance. And I was probably fighting insurance almost that entire time. We had, so I got to this point where I was, I was kind of like, you know, maybe we don't need to do this. Maybe it's too much. And I just, now that we've done it, now that we've had that, now that we had that experience with this specific doctor too, like, it was incredible. Like, it was just, it was one of the most positive experiences I've had as a mom. Just, you know, her being in charge of, like, that surgery, as kind of transparent as she was, as well as how positive. Like, my kid loves his big ear. He loves it. Like, he shows it off to people. And so it's like, I've never have regretted it one bit. Did you guys do any kind of, like, infant sign languages? He was growing up. So our audiologist recommended that we start it early. So we started infant sign language at four months. Um, and he was signing by probably close to six. Um, and he signed probably from six to about 18 months. He started talking at seven months. And he boomed about 15 months old. And from like 18 months to two, he kind of stopped signing and just started talking. Um, and, and our doctor, because he also has to get um, speech assessments once a year until this last year. He stopped at three to see if he needed help with, um, you know, if he had any delays or he needed anything like that. And our doctor has told us time and time again that the only reason, because about 65% of kids with his condition have some type of speech delay or they have learning issues or they have something like that. And our doctor has told us time and time again that the only reason he doesn't and that he's been very vocal and kind of ahead is because of his hearing aid. She said, if he didn't have that, like, I would, I would expect him to have a, some type of delay. Oh my gosh. Thank goodness you got the good advice to get that. <laughs> we, you know, and that's kind of, that has been my part where people, you know, if they question, I'm like, you know, that's why I don't question it because I was fully prepared for speech delays. I was fully prepared for speech impediments because you don't hear it correctly. So you don't say it correctly kind of thing. Um, and I was fully prepared for that. I'd done the reading. I knew it was very common with this condition and it just did not happen. And, you know, knock on wood, because he's still only like almost four, um, but it, it, he hasn't had any issue at all with that. And so I'm just very much like, I've, that to me was enough. Like if we had a similar situation, I would always say, and that's why I always tell parents, they ask, I'm always like, I would always say get aided as early as they can, because it does make a difference. Like I've seen it. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about when he got his hearing aid um, and could fully hear for the first time? Oh, it was incredible. Um, <laughs> he was about two months old. It was in July, the beginning of July um, in 2013. And he just, he was overwhelmed. And you could tell, like, he, I'm not a loud person already, so I don't think he had had, like, he had been able to hear me. <laughs> he could hear a whisper he could hear they were testing different things and he could hear just like birds singing and things like that and being able to one of the parts of his type of loss is that if he's in an area that has a lot of background noise like a mall or just you know, a, a street anything like that with a lot of background noise they can't always differentiate specific sounds like if I call his name in that atmosphere that kind of thing and so they did some tests like that where they would see how he was responding and he immediately could tell. He could immediately look at me and know where the sound was coming from 
which had always been, I mean, it still is a part of the other part of that is the locational hearing, meaning that if, you know, if I'm somewhere in the house and I say his name, he knows where to go. Um, and he could immediately, he used to, when he was first born, he would just look around. Like if you called him from a different room, he would look all around. Like, I know there's noise. I don't know where it is. And as soon as that hearing aid was on, he could immediately just turn and look at us. He knew exactly where we were. He knew whose voice it was. I mean, it was, it was the one thing that I wish we would have recorded. Like we took some pictures, but we didn't even think to record it. And now I'm like, why didn't we record that? Because it was just such, like, I would have loved to have shown it to our family and just shared it with them and stuff. And I was like, dang. We were, I think we were both just so overwhelmed with it that we didn't even think about it. <laughs> I love the advice Kim gives in reference to her son and their experience. One, learn all you can and then be confident with the decisions you make. Two, if you have a child with the possibility of hearing loss, get aided as soon as possible. Clearly, it worked so well for Thomas and their ability to communicate with each other. I asked Kim the incredibly tough question of trying to sum up their journey in one word or phrase. This is quite possibly my favorite answer ever. Well, Thomas's great-grandmother calls him, and has called him since he was probably about a year old, um, the joy boy. And that's him. Like, he is a very happy, joyful kid. And I think that through, I mean, throughout everything, when we got back from surgery the night that we got home, he wanted to eat macaroni and watch Ninja Turtles. We had to call because he ate four four bowls of macaroni. <laughs> we were like, is this okay? Our doctor was like, if he's not feeling sick, you're fine. <laughs> we were like, are you sure this is like she had told us, don't feed him too much. But he kept just, he was like, mom, I'm so hungry. So we were like, well, he's still hungry. <laughs> you know, he's resilient, but he's joyful throughout it. Nothing gets him down, nothing even when he would have his days, you know, he would have good days and bad days after surgery. But even on a bad day, when he just wanted to rest, he was still, he was still getting through it. And he was still full of just joy. Like he is, he's a joy boy. And that's, I mean, that's just who he is. A boy after my own heart. Macaroni and cheese all day and Ninja Turtles. Just perfect. If you're interested in finding out more about microtia atresia and would like resources, Kim recommends four websites, so get your pencils ready. Microtia.net, which has detailed and up-to-date information. Earcommunity.org, which was started by a group of moms whose children have microtia. This website contains information about how to choose the best surgery option for your child, as well as how to talk to insurance companies about getting your child aided. Kim specifically says that if you reach out to her with any questions, she's happy to answer. They were rejected five times before they were approved for their specific surgeon. Kim also recommends microtiasurgery.com, which is Thomas's surgeon's site. You can literally watch the surgery take place so you know exactly what to expect. And pedient.com, another incredible surgeon's site, Dr. Bonilla in San Antonio. If you'd like to connect with Kim, you can do so through her blog, thehillcountrywoman.com, through social media sites, Facebook and Instagram, and she also blogs for Austin Mom's blog. I will link to all of these websites on the show notes page. I want to say a big thank you to Kim for sharing her story, and another big thank you to the incredible person and photographer that is Laura Morsman Photography for her beautiful pictures of Kim and her family for this episode. If you live in Austin, book Laura Morsman Photography now.
Stay tuned for a preview of next week's episode after a word from our sponsor, Wombi Med Pods. So I'm Chelsea Vale. I'm the co-founder of Barsky Vale Designs, and we've created the first and only 360-degree swaddle sack designed specifically for hospitalized infants and neonates. Um, blankets and sleep sacks and things like that that are currently on the market are not doing what the Wombi Med Pods are doing. So the first pod that we have is our basic med pod, and it's a 360-degree swaddle sack, and it's a peanut shape, which provides comfort and warmth and keeps the infant contained while still allowing flexion and range of motion. So we're reducing the physical delays that can come from being hospitalized um, and without caregivers, without range of motion, and we're um, keeping the baby, you know, fully contained in the swaddle sack. What we also have is a patented double zipper, which makes diaper changes a lot easier, but also it makes it easier for procedures to be done, such as heel sticks, blood draws, even accessing the ID bracelet on the ankle. All you need to do is unzip the bottom zipper, pull the little foot out, and do what you need to do without disturbing the baby. And that's really important because hospitalized infants, unfortunately, with the wrapping and unwrapping and, and all of that that's going on or they're being left unswaddled, we end up having babies that down the road suffer from cognitive delays, psychosocial disorders, attachment disorders, um, empathy issues and things like that because of the negative touch, because of the overstimulation, the hyperstimulation and things like that. So what we wanted to do with this swaddle sack was to decrease the amount of um, negative touch, wrapping, unwrapping, and, and overstimulation. We have a couple of different designs. So the basic med pod has a couple of slits on the top and the sides to allow space for central lines, for tubes, for feeds, for drains, and things like that. And the other pods are specifically designed for various patient populations, such as the Wombi Billy pod, which is one of the most favorites, um, because traditionally, um, or I guess historically, Billy babies have not been able to be swaddled. All of the phototherapy light needs to be able to reach the skin. And so those babies are left splayed, arched, comfortable um, under the lights, whether they're using a wand or blanket or overhead lights, they're not able to be swaddled. But what we've done is we've created a mesh four-way stretch fabric, but it's a 360-degree swaddle, but still allows 98% of phototherapy light to reach the skin. Nurses are going nuts over the billy pod. Finally, there's a way to calm those sweet babies and still allow foot bracing and flexion and all of that. We also have the Wombi Gastropod, which again is a 360-degree swaddle, but it has a midsection flap that opens on three sides. And what that does is it allows for medical staff to access the midsection of the baby without disturbing them, without providing negative touch, and access ostomy bags, G-buttons, um, anything post-operative, um, even just assessing swelling. And we've also had some nurses say that they would use these in the NICU for servo babies because their skin needs to be open. And so they would leave that flap open. Also for newborns, they'd like to be able to assess the umbilical cord and the healing um, without touching the baby too much. We also have the trach pod that has a deep V-neck. And we started out calling it the trach pod because we wanted to allow space for trachs and vents. But the way that it fits on the baby actually leaves the sternum open that allows for cardiac um, post-operative healing. And there's also a zipper on the side that could be unzipped so you can access the port easily. Or there are some slits for Broviac lines to um, come out. 
And then our last one is a Wombi gel pod that has a removable gel insert that goes in the back of the swaddle. And actually, all of them are going to have that eventually. They will all have a back chamber for the gel. And what that does is it mimics the womb and provides a comforting, fluid-like position, I guess, for the baby and relieves the pressure off of the spine and pressure points and things like that. If the baby is put into side body position, then the weight of the gel can be kind of just over the side body to provide more comfort, more support, and help that baby to feel um, safe and secure even when they're away from caregivers. All of the Wombi Med Pods have passed OSHA standards. They've all been washed at 290 degrees, um, 15, 20 times. I can't remember exactly how many, but they did pass the OSHA um, sanitation test, and we have our certificate. Uh, there was no change in color, no change in fabric, no change in zippers or shape or size or anything like that. The fabric of the Wombi is actually a four-way stretch fabric, so it does not stretch out. It's going to snap back to size. We offer all of the Wombi Med Pods in micro preemie, preemie, and newborn size. And our goal is to be sure that every baby in the hospital, whether they're in the NICU or regular patient populations, can be swaddled and the medical staff will have easy access to those babies. We'd like to be able to reduce hospitalization trauma so that these babies have increased cognitive development, increased psychosocial development, and increased physical development whether or not they've ever been hospitalized or for how long. We want every baby to be swaddled. And from next week's episode... You know, I don't even know if my child's going to walk and he may not even hear. I mean, it was just, it was really hard. It was just, that was definitely one of those things where it really spoke to me, Katie, when you were talking about doing these podcasts, because like at that very moment, and you really truly do feel, you know, you're in a room with your child and your husband or your family, whoever else might be in there and doctors, but you seriously do feel alone. I mean, you just, you feel like, you know, you know, you're just like spinning. I mean, it's just such a weird experience that your brain, it's so funny how your brain just starts just going all these different directions and thoughts and emotions and, um, you know, it's just hard. That was Abigail, and next week you will hear her talk about her son's spina bifida and hearing loss diagnoses. Check back next Monday to hear this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Child Life on Call podcast. See you next week.